This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from our homes and via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Wisconsin's energy utilities are not on track to make their carbon reduction goals for 2030. That's according to a report from Wisconsin's Public Service Commission, which monitors utility companies. For most of the large utilities, the goal was to cut carbon emissions by 80% by 2030, according to Wisconsin Public Radio. That goal was further complicated by the decision to postpone the retirement of three coal-powered plants in the state. Wisconsin Electric Utilities plan on adding 2,500 megawatts of solar power over the next six years. Republican Party gubernatorial candidate Kevin Nicholson announced today that he was dropping out of the race. This move comes after polls found Nicholson trailing behind frontrunners Tim Michaels and Rebecca Clayfish, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Nicholson said he dropped out after deciding it would take a negative smear campaign to catch up, which he said he was not willing to do. Nicholson also said he was not planning on endorsing another candidate. The alleged shooter in the Highland Park shooting yesterday north of Chicago briefly fled to the Madison area, according to a police news conference held earlier today. The suspect fled the scene and drove to Wisconsin and then returned to Illinois, where his car was recognized and helped lead to his arrest, according to WISC-TV. The motive of the shooting has yet to be determined. The first case of monkeypox has been reported in Wisconsin, according to the State Department of Health Services. Monkeypox is a disease found in parts of Africa, but has recently been diagnosed in Europe and now North America. The first case in Wisconsin was in a resident of Dane County who was placed in isolation. The agency said the risk of infection remains low, according to the Associated Press. A Catholic church in Madison was vandalized over the weekend. The phrase, pro-life my blank, let's talk about all the native kids you've killed, was spray-painted on the door of the church, reports WKOW. The vandalism comes over a week after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned abortion protections. It also comes as Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call is investigating the sexual assault of indigenous children by the Catholic church. Police are investigating the incident. The Dane County Regional Airport will finish its runway construction project on Friday. The completed construction will allow planes coming into the airport to resume their usual north-south flight path, which will reduce sound pollution over the isthmus. The completed runway project is one part of a larger expansion of the airport, reports the Capital Times. Currently, construction is underway to the south terminal, adding new gates that can accommodate larger planes. Construction has also started on redoing the roadway next to the airport, temporarily displacing curbside pickup and drop-off. And now on to today's top stories. Earlier this year, the Wisconsin State Journal reported that the Henry Violet Zoo had their only two black zookeepers leave their jobs due to allegations of racism, retaliation, and animal neglect. Now the USDA has issued two violations against the zoo for their treatment of animals. WRT producer Nate Buggyhout has more. The Henry Vilas Zoo has received two warnings from the federal government for animal neglect. The notices were issued from the U.S. Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, a federal agency that, among other things, regulates genetically engineered organisms, administers the Animal Welfare Act, and manages wildlife damage. The violations, issued on May 26, focus on the zoo's treatment of capybaras, including one incident that resulted in the death of an animal. 
There are two types of incident violations that can be issued, critical and non-critical. A critical incident is one that has a serious or severe adverse effect on the health and well-being of the animal. A non-critical incident is one that has only a minor adverse effect on the health and well-being of an animal. The first violation, listed as a critical incident, occurred when zoo staff issued a sedative to a male capybara when it ran past staff and jumped into an empty pool. Jess Thompson is the conservation education curator with the zoo. She says that although the animal received immediate medical attention, the capybara did not survive. The second violation, listed as a non-critical incident, concerns the sanitation of the capybara enclosure at the zoo. More specifically, it takes issue with the way the zoo handled pest control in the enclosure. The violation notes that there were four incidents of raccoons getting into the enclosure within a three-week period. During that period, one male capybara received some injuries from a raccoon. At the time, the report says that all pest control at the zoo was done in-house. The report does note that, after these incidents occurred, the zoo did begin to contract with an outside pest control company and had no more issues with raccoons at the zoo. Thompson says that the zoo has taken efforts to make the zoo safer since the incidents. We always want to learn and do better regardless, so we've changed a couple of our various um, holding areas to make sure that any future procedures, veterinary procedures that we do, are much safer. Um, and so he he noted that and um, that that concern was re- resolved. Thompson says that because they made their changes by the time of the inspection in April, the zoo face no fines or penalties from the violations. The agency issues surprise inspections for all licensed zoos every year to make sure that they are treating their animals properly under the Animal Welfare Act. The U.S. Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service could not be reached for comment on the inspection by airtime. The Association of Zoos and Aquariums, or AZA, is a nonprofit organization tracking the standards of zoos in America. The Henry Vila Zoo is accredited by the AZA, a standard met by less than 10% of all zoos in the country. Rob Vernon with the ACA says that these types of violations are not uncommon. The um, USDA inspectors are pretty tough. Um, So most of the time they're going to find a violation even at the best facilities in the country. So um, what we really want to see is make sure that, you know, when they do identify a violation that it's taken care of right away. In terms of this report, uh, we would take a look at it. And in both cases, there's notes or follow-up notes to the report where it says the facility has taken action to uh, correct the violation. Vernon says that if a zoo is AZA accredited, people can be assured that the zoo is held to a strict standard of animal care. The violations came just before the Dane County Board of Supervisors voted to conduct an independent investigation into the management at the zoo. That comes after the Wisconsin State Journal reported that the zoo lost its only two black zookeepers due to allegations of racism and neglecting animal welfare. Jess Thompson says that they stand by their AZA accreditation and are proud that they are held to high standards by the USDA. We welcome the same from uh, anybody that the, the county board chooses to, to come out as well. We really want to be transparent and we want to make sure that people know that um, we are continuing to learn and grow with our zoo 
uh, field and with the best knowledge that is out there in terms of animal care and welfare. And so um, we we're really proud of the care that we do give to our animals and um, and know that Unfortunately, because USDA is not able to say, yes, they do an amazing job, that's just not something that they're allowed to say. Um, but the, the no, no current concerns noted um, is their version of saying that. The Henry Violet Zoo is scheduled to renew their accreditation with the Association of Zoos and Aquariums in 2024. The zoo isn't the only Madison institution to face violations over animal welfare. UW-Madison was also warned of multiple violations under the Animal Welfare Act for multiple instances from 2015 to 2019. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. Last Thursday, June 30th, the Madison Water Utility hosted a community listening session and update on Well 15, a municipal drinking water well shut down in 2019 due to PFAS contamination. The water utility provided updates on the Well 15 treatment project, and Madison residents had a chance to weigh in with their feedback and concerns. For more, we go to WORT reporter Emily Kazinger. Well 15 is one of Madison's 22 wells. Located on East Washington Avenue near the East Town Mall, it served water to many Northeast neighborhoods along the East Washington Corridor. PFOS, a family of forever chemicals linked to negative health effects, was detected in the well's water in 2017. The well was shut down in March of 2019 due to advocacy by neighborhood associations and the Madison Environmental Justice Forum. The well has remained shut since. The city has been exploring treatment plans to bring the well back online, and Thursday's meeting served as both an update and a chance for community input on those plans. At the meeting, Krishna Kumar, the general manager of the water utility, reaffirmed the city's commitment to making sure Well 15's water is treated before its reopening. We will not operate Well 15 until after the PFAS treatment project is complete. In other words, Thou shalt not get untreated water from well 15. He continued, detailing the utility's plans. What is it that they are doing? We are proactively planning a PFAS treatment project at well 15. The water utility is contracting with ACOM, an engineering firm, to create a design for well 15's treatment facility. Kumar explained that they have already begun that contracting work and sketched out the timeline going forward. The contract has been signed in May 2022, and we are hoping to have a preliminary design report by October 2022. So the final construction design, if all goes well in June 23, and then spring of 24, we probably can begin construction and completing it in 25. Funding is anticipated from Wisconsin's portion of the $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure law passed last November, and the city is in the process of applying for that grant and loan funding. Madison residents in the crowd ask questions, raise logistical points, and express frustrations over how the Well 15 project has progressed. Concerns included the perceived slow pace of the project and the two-year delay in shutting the well down. Water utility staff emphasized that Well 15 PFAS contamination was below Wisconsin drinking water standards. Levels of combined PFOA and PFOS, two PFAS chemicals with well-researched negative health impact, were detected in the well in 2018 at 12 parts per trillion, 
lower than the Wisconsin drinking water standard of 70 parts per trillion. However, the federal EPA issued health advisories on June 15th, and those were 0.004 parts per trillion for PFOA and 0.02 parts per trillion for PFOS, orders of magnitude lower than Wisconsin standards and below what is currently detectable. These new advisories were revised down from the EPA's 2016 health advisory of 70 parts per trillion because of new evidence that negative health effects can occur at lower levels than previously thought. Some residents were worried their communities were being left behind. Todd Johnson, a Madison East Community Center staff member, pointed out racial disparities. His statement was off microphone and unfortunately inaudible in our recording, but he said, people who are black and brown seem to be affected way more harshly than the other communities. Another staff member asked if the city would provide water filters in the meantime. Is there not any responsibility on the part of Madison Water Utility to provide those filtration systems to people, especially those who are low income? If you can't pay for a filtration system that could potentially lower these levels, then you're just, I guess, out of luck. Water utility staff said that they would explore that option and again emphasize contamination was below Wisconsin standards. After the meeting, Johnson explained why he spoke up and his impression of how it went. I felt as if the black and brown community gets impacted a lot harder. And so I needed to express that. And so hopefully they got to that point that I was trying to make that, hey, this water is very important. And when we get affected, we get affected a little bit harsher. And so there was no pushback or anything like that. They seem to be receptive to it. So I'm really waiting and seeing and hoping that this next meeting coming up will have better answers than we had. Another Well 15 update and community listening session will be held at the East Madison Community Center in August. Details on the day and time will be made available closer to that time. Reporting for WORT News, this is Emily Kasinger. It's now 6.20 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. A new investigation from Tone Madison finds that one landlord is making it difficult and expensive for renters to stay cool during extreme heat. Tone Madison reports that JSW Properties, a rental company that operates Norris Court Apartments in the Tenney Lapham neighborhood, along with other near-campus properties, effectively banned window air conditioning units earlier this spring, saying they caused damage to windows and framing. Instead, JSW instructed tenants to only use portable units, a more expensive option. WORT reporter DeMorian Thompson spoke with Scott Gordon earlier today. I am on the line with Scott Gordon, editor-in-chief and publisher of Tone Madison, covering music and cultures in Madison. He was out yesterday with a new article about Madison Landlord has banned window air conditioners, and he joins me now. Scott, thank you so much for being on. Yeah, thank you for having me. So tell us about your article, What's Going On at North's? court? So uh, JSW Properties, which is the landlord at Norris Court um, and some other apartment properties around town, has started telling tenants as of the spring that they could no longer use window air conditioning units in their apartments. 
And their stated reasoning for this was that, well, the window AC units are causing damage to the historic windows in our properties. And what they did tell tenants was that they could buy floor air conditioning units, which are, are set up a little differently and are also fairly expensive. Um, so, and they weren't offering, you know, any financial help or, any, or, or a break on the rent or anything like that to make up for the cost of those new units. So uh, naturally, tenants have been kind of upset about the possible financial hardship of that and also dealing with the record heat that we've had so far this year. So we know those AC, those new ones on the floor cost about 258 to 300 the ones that they showed tenants. So why were they showing those ones and not any other ones that were cheaper? Are those like the cheapest ones that they could find or what? Those are um, on the cheaper end of the spectrum for floor air conditioning units. I'm not sure why they chose those specific ones. Um, I did reach out to JSW for comments and did not hear back from them. But, um, you know, some tenants were saying that it would take two of those units to adequately cool their apartments. Um, and, you know, and, and there's some debate over whether those four units are better than window units. I've had a lot of people say that they are less efficient and less effective at cooling. Have you heard anything from the landlord or JSW um, yesterday or today at all? No, I haven't. I did reach out to them for comment, did place a couple of calls to their office, but have not heard anything back from them. In the course of reporting the story, several tenants told me that they had signed a petition that was delivered to JSW, you know, asking them to reconsider the policy or provide some kind of rent relief to account for the cost of window units. And as far as I know, they still have not heard anything back. Mm. And then is this legal? Are they allowed to do this? Well, it's really not clear as far as I know, because Wisconsin's landlord-tenant laws have pretty good protections for making sure that you can get heat in the winter, but uh, less so uh, protections for getting cooling during the summer. I think a really hairy thing here, too, is that at some point, JSW started putting language into leases reflecting this change. But some people had pointed out to me that when JSW started enforcing this policy, they were still under the term of old leases that did not explicitly ban AC units. Um, I did talk to uh, an attorney in the piece who has some expertise in landlord-tenant law, uh, a guy named Mitch from UW-Madison's Law School, and um, he walked through some of the nuances. Like, they might have some recourses if they can demonstrate that there's a health effect or that the ventilation in the buildings is, is poor, but it's kind of a tricky thing to take your landlord to court and, and to wait on some kind of a ruling for the judge from a judge when you're dealing with the heat right now. So you're only able to get good heat during the winter, but during the spring, you basically have to fend for yourself if it's really hot outside. Yeah, it all kind of depends on what you can basically convince a judge to sign off on under the law. The, the protections for it aren't that strong, but you can you know, try to make an argument for, oh, this has a significant impact on my health or something like that. So 
Um, they don't have a ton of legal recourse as far as I can figure out. It may not be enforceable depending on what some tenants leases actually say, but um, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't look good as far as their legal remedies for this. And we're talking about, you know, clients in, you know, relatively affordable buildings where people with generally pretty low or modest incomes tend to live. So, you know, just, just the cost of like actually going to court and dealing with all that, um, you know, is probably a bit daunting. Yeah. Cause I looked up the prices of their houses and the rent is from $973 to a thousand for a month. And plus with those AC units going from $300, that is going to be a heavy, a heavy burden on the person who is purchasing that. Would you agree to with that? Yeah, for the most part. And, you know, one of my sources in the story pointed out to me that a lot of uh, grad students live in these buildings and they are often on a pretty fixed income. And, you know, the, the end of the academic year is not a great time to be hitting them with additional costs. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and I, just given the, the pressure financially that renters are under in Madison overall, it's a pretty tough thing to imagine having to deal with right now, you know, spending an extra 200 or $300 at the lower end of the spectrum for those products. Do you have any add-on with the climate change and the danger to people's health with living in those uh, apartments? Yeah, I mean, I would just point out that it's, it's, it's especially worrisome to see this in the context of climate change, you know, given that we continue to set heat records and whatnot year after year and had this really unseasonable heat wave in May, of course. And it is a public health issue. Um, you know, heat waves, extreme heat um, are uh, a very deadly and dangerous thing. So um, it's, yeah, it's a little concerning to see people dealing with this. And I wonder what the implications will be for landlord-tenant protections in a state that doesn't have very good landlord-tenant protections because there are a lot of landlords in the legislature who write laws to benefit themselves. I have been on the line with Scott Gordon, editor-in-chief and publisher of Tone Madison, covering music and culture in Madison. He's the author of a recent article called Emitting Heat Waves, A Madison Landlord Has Banned Window Air Conditioner, and you can read it online at tomemadison.com. Scott, thank you so much for joining me today. Okay, thanks very much. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful, here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. Storms in southern Wisconsin are forecast to be strong to severe this evening, given current conditions. With more about what to expect tonight and further into the week, here's WORT weather producer Caitlin Davis. You may have heard the rumbling of thunder through Madison today, and that was just an introduction to the weather we will be seeing into tonight. CAPE, or Convection Available Potential Energy, which is a measure of available energy for convection, is prominent today, meaning if this holds, these storms could be strong to severe. Models are also indicating upstream development, which is the direction of the flow up in the north, 
but will take a path through moisture and instability gradient to southern Wisconsin this evening. In addition, there was a heat advisory today with the potential of reaching 102 degrees, something we've been seeing pretty frequently so far this summer. Temperatures are currently sitting at around 85 degrees, but because of the humidity, the heat index is sitting at 93. Wind is coming from east to northeast, blowing at around 4 miles per hour. The humidity is hovering in the low 70s, but will continue to increase into the evening as the storms make their way through. Storms are looking to be favorable to begin at around 8 p.m. and can hold overnight into all of tomorrow. The time of which the storms arrive are greatly fluctuating as conditions are changing. If conditions hold, we could be seeing some hail along with 60 mile per hour winds in southern Wisconsin. With the storms looking to be strong to severe, here's what to remember. Never go outside when you hear thunder or see lightning. Get inside a sturdy building or a car and shut the windows. Noah says do not take a bath or shower, wash dishes, or even stand your plumbing when hearing thunder as water pipes conduct electricity. Make sure to unplug appliances and chargers. If you have to charge your phone, don't use it while it's plugged into the cord. In addition, stay up to date with your local news station or radio station for updates on severity of the storms. Tomorrow has the potential for scattered showers and thunderstorms and will hold the humid conditions. The models are lacking confidence in the moisture and instability for Wednesday, but that doesn't take away the possibility to see these storms. Thursday is looking to be warm and humid again with the possibility for scattered showers and thunderstorms and variable cloudiness. Temperatures are looking to reach the low 80s and the same conditions stand for Friday. Reporting your weather from the WORT station, I'm your producer, Caitlin Davis. While UW-Madison is in the midst of its scaled-back summer session, the Cardinal Call returns for a special update from campus. This week, producer Hope Carnop spoke with Ellie Burdeau, the new associate editor with the Daily Cardinal, about vegan and vegetarian dining options available for students on campus. So I think it's important for students to know that there is food for them to eat, like that they don't have to be afraid to go into the dining hall and be like, oh my gosh, what do I have to eat here, you know? Hello and welcome to the Cardinal Call, your dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup, joined today by our new associate news editor, Ellie Bordeaux. We discuss how dining halls are working to accommodate vegetarian and vegan students. Welcome to the show, Ellie. Thank you for having me. (laughs) So I think this is your first time on the show. Could you introduce yourself and describe what you'll be doing at the Cardinal this year? Um, So my name is Ellie Bordeaux. I'm going to be a junior this year, and um, I am currently the Associates Desk Editor at the Cardinal. We cover breaking news and some campus news as well. What got you interested in writing about this topic? Um, So I'm actually a vegetarian, and I have a lot of friends that are like vegetarians or like plant-based or whatever. Um, So I got interested in this topic because of that mainly, but also because when I was a freshman in the dorms, I like kind of experienced some struggles like with plant-based eating and like um, being a vegetarian and that sort of thing. And I wanted to get other people's perspective on it. 
um, and kind of see ways we could improve it and talk to staff and stuff. So that's kind of what got me interested in it. So I imagine for some listeners, it's been a while since they have eaten in a dining hall. Can you describe what food options are available for students on campus and who is able to use them? The food options that are available, well, I was there during COVID. So for me, it was like prepackaged meals. And so that might have made it worse, um, sort of. But um, I mean, there's different stations and like restaurants um, with different options. So there's like a, I remember there was a stir fry bar. There's a, like a sandwich bar. There's like a home meals bar or something like that. Um, And so it's kind of like all like pre kind of set menu items at each location. So that's kind of what each dining hall is like, I think. At um, Memorial Union, there's like different restaurants with different options as well. It's more like restaurant based. um, Rather, the dining hall is like you have your meals set out. Um, Similar to Union South, they have different restaurant options available um, and that sort of thing. So that's kind of the difference between the dining halls and the unions. So you talked to two students who are either vegan or vegetarian. What did they have to say about the options that have been available to them in dining halls? Yeah. So uh, Carly Robbins, she is a vegan and she was vegan in the dining halls. And she said it was um, difficult. But what was interesting was that she understood why it was difficult in comparison to the percentage of students that are vegan on campus. Um compared to those that are not. And so kind of correlating that into the menu options, um, she kind of talked about how she understood why there were limited options, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and then Marina, the other student I talked to, she was she was going vegetarian for Lent. She actually gave up meat. So that was interesting to hear about her differences with um, being able to eat meat. And then being a vegetarian, she never really understood how limited the options were until she actually experienced it herself. And she was like, okay, yeah, we should probably do better on this. So those two, uh, hearing from both those students was really interesting. What are the university's standards for having vegetarian and vegan offerings? And are there any challenges to offering more options? When I talked to Agnes Sherman, she said that about 20% of the menus are geared towards being vegan or vegetarian. Um, And they have a like kind of a group where students can kind of give their feedback of vegan and vegetarian options and try different new possible menu items um, and give their feedback with that sort of thing. And they're trying to include more as they as like they kind of grow and learn more about like the students because it is just, it's recently becoming more popular. Um, so they're trying to work with the trends and have more options as the trends go up. Are there any other steps that UW is taking to accommodate vegan and vegetarian students? The chefs, uh, they develop the menus um, and they're the ones that incorporate these vegan and vegetarian options. And so they include uh, different plant-based products with like Beyond Meat, um, Morningstar, or Dr. Prager. And they're looking to, they're currently required to offer vegan and vegetarian options. Um, But it's difficult because they have to produce them on a large scale. So they're working to kind of make it easier to 
produce these items on a larger scale and just kind of do that sort of thing. And they basically, like I said, with the kind of group that they have with vegan and vegetarian students um, and giving their feedback and stuff, that's one of the ways that they're looking to incorporate or kind of expand their menus with the feedback that they receive from students. What importance do you think this story has for students that are just coming to campus for freshman orientation or the campus at large? Well, I think, like I said before, plant-based diets and like being vegan or vegetarian or different diet options is becoming more popular. Um, So I think it's important for students to know that there is food for them to eat, like that they don't have to be afraid to go into the dining hall and be like, oh my gosh, what do I have to eat here? You know? Um, So I think it's kind of like, I, I want like the freshmen to be, to feel included in the dining hall and be like, oh, okay, like this will be fine. Um, And kind of show them that they're looking to improve it. It's not perfect. Nothing's perfect, but they want to make it better. So I wanted to kind of relieve the stress of that. Is there anything else interesting that you learned while you were working on this story and talking to some students? I mean, I guess the most interesting thing was just kind of hearing about the experiences that students had and talking to Agnes Sherman. They all gave me interesting feedback from the questions that I asked them. Carly was very understanding about the dining hall, whereas Marina was like, oh, they need to do a better job of this sort of thing. So it was really interesting to see that contrast between students. But it was also interesting to hear from Agnes and kind of, she was kind of saying like, we hear that there's, it's not perfect, but we want to make it better for students. So that was really cool to hear from her. And she, she made it very obvious that they're working to improve it. Um, So I thought those things are really interesting. Great. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Ellie, and talking about your story with us. Yeah, thank you. Other campus news. Members of the campus community have held two recent protests to spread the message to stop Asian hate. In one incident, an international doctoral student from China was assaulted near campus, just off of University Avenue. Four suspects were arrested in mid-June in connection to the attack, and two other similar incidents. Another Chinese international student emailed the Cap Times to describe another incident in which a banana was thrown at him. While police and the university have said there is no evidence that the incidents were racially motivated, an open letter signed by dozens of faculty, students, alumni, and organizations urged for a more thorough investigation. Students from the APIDA community took to social media to describe instances where they felt unsafe and criticized the university for not doing more to protect students. Last fall, two men were charged with hate crimes and assaults on Asian students that occurred on campus. USC and UCLA will join UW-Madison in the Big Ten Conference, marking a major shakeup in college sports. In 2024, the West Coast schools will join the conference that mostly has roots in the Midwest and the East Coast. In a statement, John Schultz, who is serving as interim chancellor, said the expansion helped solidify the Big Ten as the, quote, one true national powerhouse conference. UW-Madison Athletic Director Chris McIntosh said that he is especially thrilled that alumni on the West Coast will be more connected to the conference and to their alma mater. 
Badger football kicks off on September 3rd with a 6 p.m. home game against Illinois State. That's all for our Cardinal Call. We'll be back for another installment a month from now. The story you heard today is featured in our special print edition for SOAR, which is New Student Orientation. If you want to pick up a copy, we have a map of our stand locations under the About Us tab at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. On tonight's Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg babysits a bird with some of the most aggressive parents around, the killdeer. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment and today I want to talk about probably one of my favorite birds, the killdeer. And I saw them this week not only at the Wildlife Center but also outside in the wild and it made me think that we don't really talk enough about those little tiny birds that hatch where people will still see them everywhere but they they're hard to spot they're easy to be at risk to predation and to cars along roadways they're just so small and so tiny that sometimes people forget that they're there especially during the breeding season and this is the time right now when killdeer are out they're hatched and their parents are with their babies for quite a while until they can actually fly which is actually about 20 days from the time they hatch out of the egg they're also some of my favorite birds because they are one of those that are precocial means that they are able to actually leave the nest within just a couple of days of hatching and they can walk they can run they can swim they can do everything and they can even find their own food but usually the parents are around to help guide them it's pretty amazing and it's it's a strategy that has been developed by birds that are primarily waterfowl so when i think of ducks or a lot of our shorebirds so killdeer would be considered a shorebird coots quails there's a bunch of others it's a lot different than our altricial birds which are most of the songbirds we care for in wildlife rehabilitation that are in a nest that are young naked helpless eyes closed sometimes patches of down feathers and so those birds need constant attention and that's the the birds that we're feeding every 15 to 20 minutes to every half an hour all throughout the day at our wildlife center now when we get a baby killdeer in because they're precocial the nice thing is it's pretty simple to be able to give them the appropriate cage and setup with lots of enrichment the hard part is getting them to eat because they're so stressed without their parent and their parent really is there to guide them and i think it's probably some of the most uh, intensive parental interactions that i feel like i've read about about different birds, you know, you, you don't really see it in wildlife rehabilitation because we almost never get a parent and a baby together. It's always going to be one orphaned single for some reason. So to see them out in the wild, which I did uh, this week actually, getting to watch some killdeer parents and some babies running around, the killdeer parent is very aggressive in their noise and their vocalizations. So they definitely will put out alarm calls constantly. And they're even known to do the type of behavior where they'll fake a broken wing so that a predator might be interested in the parent and not the babies that are running around. So I think that's a really cool strategy that a lot of birds have uh, you know, adopted, but killdeer are the ones that we think of as being 
the poster child for the broken wing or faked broken wing. But they are also birds that nest on the ground, which is very precarious, right? So they tend to put their eggs in like gravel piles or sometimes mulch areas, occasionally on the tops of a roof, actually, if especially if it's kind of like a gritty roof, which can be a little scary. But as you may have seen with uh, videos of ducks that jump from their nest boxes, can be similar for killdeer. They're very soft and bouncy and fluffy when they're young. I think one of the most fun facts that I have ever read about that in particular is that on a rooftop nest in an area of Mississippi, there was a, a group of killdeer that would nest on top and there was a rain gutter and the parents would be able to call from the bottom of the rain gutter and the sound would reverber reverberate up to the top and the baby chicks would then jump into the rain gutter and then just slide all the way down. So. I mean, if you're not thinking birds are smart and intuitive or use tools or whatever, <laughs> let that be a really cool story for you to share. And that's that's a pretty amazing thing that they learned how to do. But normally they'll just be incubated on, on the parent um, for a certain set number of days. The killdeer parents are so careful about temperature because you know if it's too hot outside too cold outside they're going to be doing everything they can to make sure that those eggs are at the right temperature for hatching and so that they're successful so the parents will definitely sit on top of those eggs during especially cold weather but even if it gets too hot because you know right now in wisconsin for example it's pretty darn warm outside um, if it gets to temperatures above 100 degrees the parents are actually known to get away from the eggs, shade the eggs with their wings and their body so that it provides a little extra protection from the sun. And even as much as to dripping water from their beaks on top of the eggs to help cool them down. I mean, if that's not an invested parent, I'm not really sure what is, but that's, I think it's pretty amazing. And actually in our area of the world, a little bit further north, uh, the father actually does quite a bit more for that parental input than the mother does, and including overnight brooding on top of those eggs. So I think that's pretty neat. Now, killdeer don't feed their babies. All they do is kind of show them where those feeding areas are. So my favorite thing about seeing killdeer in the wild and even in the wildlife center is seeing them run around to different areas of their enclosures. Um, and in the wild, you'll see the parents just like zoom across the road uh, towards a stream or to a cornfield or something and the babies are expected to just follow them so they do these like funny vocalizations and then they just like they're so fast they're speedy they're just zooming everywhere and that's shorebirds for you for sure but that does make it more dangerous for them especially when those birds are nesting near roadsides and people might not see them because again they are so small they're only a couple of inches high when they're babies so you really have to be aware of where you're driving and uh, or where you're biking or whatever so you don't accidentally run over or squish those little babies because they are very, very fragile at those first couple of days of life. So the parents will constantly bring them over and show them areas where there's good food. And their favorite foods, honestly, are beetles. So a lot of beetles of different varieties are going to be their favorites, but they also eat a lot of other things too. So sometimes it'll be ants, uh, sometimes some plant fibers and some seeds because they do eat grit, which is little pebbles or rocks or, or other that are grinding up the organic material in their gizzard, which is pretty neat. So other birds like morning doves do that, for example, and pigeons and things. So it's not a lot, but it's definitely 
useful in their digestive system, but they also eat a lot of mosquito larvae. So if you like kill deer for one reason, one primary one might be that they eat a ton of mosquito larvae. So the more shorebirds that we have in that kind of respect here in Wisconsin, hopefully maybe over time, the less mosquitoes that we're going to have. So lots of research has been done about how much they've been eating there, but then also some worms and then grasshoppers and other things and some grains. So occasionally fish, but pretty, pretty low uh, there, but mostly beetles, beetles and fly larvae. Oh, and even horseflies and deer fly have been known to be eaten by killdeer. So I also don't like those because they bite humans and it hurts a lot. So it's kind of nice to know that there are animals that feed on those here in Wisconsin. So those baby birds are out right now. There are quite a few of them in Wisconsin. Be on the lookout in case one of the babies gets separated from their parents or if they get injured. And so hopefully you'll be able to call your local wildlife rehabilitation center, um, check the DNR website for the most local or closest rehabilitation center to you. Otherwise, give us a call at the Wildlife Center if you need a reference or you need some help, or if you're not sure about the situation and maybe just want some advice about what to do because their location might be kind of perilous. So our phone number at the Wildlife Center at Dane County Humane Society is 608-287-3235. And otherwise, thank you for listening today on WORT. This has been your Wildlife Weekly about killdeer hatchlings. Thanks for listening. There are plenty of ways to study the stars, but one particularly useful method is to examine the light that stars and a variety of interstellar anomalies emit. On this week's Archival Radio Astronomy, host Rourke Habegger walks us through the complex ways astronomers look at light. Welcome to Radio Astronomy. I'm Rourke, and today I'll take you through a web of filaments and bubbles in the Milky Way. We observe outer space in a variety of ways, from light to gravitational waves to high-energy cosmic ray particles. We can detect a lot of stuff here on Earth. Electromagnetic radiation, or light, is the primary way we study the universe. The constituent objects of the Milky Way create light waves with many different frequencies. Astronomers study these different frequencies which make up the spectrum of light we see from our galaxy. Often, we just see starlight. We approximate stars as perfect thermal emitters, absorbing and emitting light at all wavelengths in all directions. With the additional assumption of the surface of the star being a single temperature, we get Planck's spectrum. Of course, these assumptions don't match perfectly with any star. The overall trends in the spectrum of light match what we observe. So we approximate it as a perfect thermal emitter. Other times, we observe light in our galaxy which does not follow the trend of being a perfect thermal emitter. For example, in accretion disks around black holes where plasma gets really hot, we see X-ray light. These X-rays are created by processes like bremsstrahlung radiation. This just means breaking radiation in German, and it's aptly named. When an electron goes flying by a positively charged ion, the ion slows it down, like a speed bump. These interactions happen a ton in the plasma of black hole accretion disks. In a recent paper led by Professor Youssef Zadeh at Northwestern University, researchers presented observations of the Milky Way galaxy. Specifically, they took a picture of the Milky Way in 20 centimeter wavelength light with the Meerkat radio telescope array in South Africa. 
This large wavelength emission is characteristic of a different radiation process, neither Bremsstrahlung nor that of a perfect thermal emitter. Additionally, their picture showed long filaments and nearly spherical shells in the Milky Way. The spherical shells are all easily associated with supernova remnants, but the cause of the filaments is an open question. The researchers suggest that the high magnetic field strength in these filaments implies the radiation comes from cosmic ray electrons. Those are the same relativistic particles traveling near the speed of light, which we see on Earth in things like cloud chambers. These particles are flying all throughout the galaxy. When they travel near a strong magnetic field, they spiral around the magnetic field and give off light. Professor Yusef Zadeh and the other researchers think electrons traveling near the speed of light next to a strong magnetic field created the emission in the form of those filaments. The spectrum of light they saw also agrees with that hypothesis. However, the biggest open question is how did the strong magnetic fields end up where they are? They appear to be randomly oriented and randomly positioned throughout the galactic disk, but they all have similar lengths. What is the underlying mechanism which launched these tubes of magnetic field? Possibly, it could be a cosmic ray-driven wind. These winds have been suggested in other galaxies, and they could explain these magnetic filaments. Hopefully, some more observation, simulation, and theoretical work will identify exactly what produced these filaments. But for now, we have some cool pictures of the magnetic Milky Way thanks to the Meerkat Array. This has been Radio Astronomy, and I hope you have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Your reporters tonight were Demorian Thompson and Emily Kaysinger. Christine Billings was on special assignment. Your weather producer was Caitlin Davis. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the radio astronomy crew, and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal. Super Dave Lawrence engineered the show. Nate Weggie helped produce this newscast. And Charlotte Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WRT local news podcast. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish language news with the Maestro Patio. Good night.